Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. What are we going to do today? So guys, last time we left off at this really interesting moment with intelligence and race. The guys involved in creating the intelligence quotient or IQ and measuring it through these tests were beginning to undercut their own work. People like Brigham and Terman were saying that they no longer felt there was evidence for intelligence testing along the lines of whatever. What was it even along the lines of? <laughs> that intelligence results were a function of inherited capacity. Right. Like Jim said. Anyway, um, it, so it, it seemed like intelligence testing was going to die off during the 30s and 40s. So what are we doing here with another intelligence episode? And this is only episode number two, and there <laughs> will be more. Oh, because Lord. intelligence testing didn't die off in the 1930s and 40s. In fact, what happened was that it returned with a vengeance later in the 20th century and became even more central than it had been in the discussion of race. That's what we're building to in this series. Remember last time we started with the folk notion of intelligence and race, how Thomas Jefferson had claimed that people of African descent just couldn't ascend to the intellectual heights of some Enlightenment scholars like, well, like him. <laughs> and then that sort of racism regarding intelligence just got sharper and sharper throughout the 19th and on into the 20th century. It didn't go away. So our, our story last time, we jumped around a little bit nationally, went from England, and then we talked about France for a little while, and then the United States, and we followed intelligence testing itself. So today we have to backtrack a little bit. We have to go back right to the moment where we took the focus off of the UK in the first decade of the 20th century. Now, I, I think we should say right at the outset that listeners who expect us to talk about white intelligence versus black intelligence scores and the science behind that in this episode might get confused about what it is that we're doing. The differences between racial groups, that really was not the focus of many of the figures that we're talking about today. Instead, they usually focused on intelligence within the group that we would usually call white, but their work fit very easily into what we'll discuss more next time, which is the differences in intelligence between groups. So, with that being said, I think we have to return to the work of Francis Galton and Charles Spearman. They were working on increasing awareness about mental degeneracy in Britain. That's what we talked about last time. By 1904, the warnings of Galton had alarmed the British government enough that they set up a royal commission on the care and control of the feeble-minded to study just how bad mental degeneracy was getting in the empire. There's that word again, feeble-minded. You know, it occurred to me after the last episode, we never really defined what they meant by feeble-minded. Do you have any intel on that? Yeah, you're right. We didn't really. Uh, well, here's, here's how the Royal Commission defined it in their report, which they published in 1908. This is the quote. Persons who may be capable of earning a living under favorable circumstances, but are incapable from mental defect existing from birth or from an early age, one, of competing on equal terms with their normal fellows, or two, of managing themselves and their affairs with ordinary prudence, end quote. So that's their definition of feeble-minded. That's right. So what the commission was hoping to identify, quote, they wanted to find idiots and epileptics, imbeciles, feeble-minded or defective persons. In other words, they were trying to capture a more 
high functioning and the non-criminal mentally ill, then more of those sorts of people than were covered by the earlier lunacy laws in 1886 and 1804. I can see how this was completely consistent with Galton's ideas and his belief that intelligence is inherited within families. Exactly. The 1908 Royal Commission report estimated that about half a percent of the British population was mentally defective. That actually means hundreds of thousands of people that were not in a position to care for themselves or to earn a living. And so immediately, a new group formed to push the British government to do something about this. Following the initiative of Francis Galton way back in 1883, they called themselves the Eugenic Education Society. Get this. Did you guys know this organization still exists? No, I didn't know that. They didn't. Yeah, they, they kept that name until 1989. And then they changed it to the Galton Institute. So, of course, they're not fooling anybody. Right. So what do they do now? You know, I couldn't figure this out based on the very little published stuff on their site, which probably means that they are, in some senses, still advocating for eugenics. I don't know about you, but if it were me and I wasn't and my predecessors had, I would make it very clear that I had gone a different direction. Some people associated with the Institute have been accused in popular media just recently of holding racist ideas. Well, their, their intellectual ancestors, the Eugenic Education Society, what they read out of that Royal Commission report in 1908 was that Britain was becoming a nation of degenerates. But the British government actually reacted to the findings of the Royal Commission in exactly the opposite way. They passed a progressive reform of social welfare and the first of its kind graduated income and inheritance tax. So eugenicists, which of course many of them were wealthy and would be affected by these taxes, they got angry. In 1910, the Eugenic Education Society sent a delegation to personally petition the new prime minister to use some of the new tax money instead of to benefit the poor to gradually eliminate them, lest these new social entitlements lead to still higher taxes down the road as that group of people grew in number. Wow, that doesn't sound very different from arguments that people are making against welfare in the U.S. today. It's really not. In 2008, State Representative John Labruzzo of Louisiana proposed to pay poor people $1,000 to get sterilized and to provide tax incentives for wealthier people to have babies. He even said, get ready for this, guys. So when he announced the plan, he was kind of preemptively responding to critiques that he thought he was going to get for this proposal. And he said, quote, the black community will say this is some sort of race-based genocide. They'll try to say these people are incapable of making such a decision when their life is in turmoil. That if you're dangling money in front of them, of course they'll make a decision that will affect them negatively. My argument would be, If they're incapable of making a decision whether to cease reproduction, are they capable of raising multiple children to be good citizens? And if they're incapable, maybe social services should take their children. Oof. Yeah. That's both offensive and uncannily similar to exactly what was said in Britain a whole century ago. I swear that adage that those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it, sometimes it sounds terribly, terribly true. That hurts your little historian's heart, doesn't it? Historians have hearts? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, so the the Eugenic Education Society, they send this group to the prime minister in 1910. They don't convince the prime minister, but they did convince somebody else who'd be a powerful ally down the road, the brand new home secretary. A home secretary is a very powerful position in the prime minister's cabinet. And that man's name was Winston Churchill. Dun-dun! 
that was that was well placed. So Winston <laughs> Churchill would become a cheerleader for the eugenic movement for decades. For about two years, debates about what to do with all these mental degenerates raged in the press and even on the floor of Parliament. Now, chief among the pro-eugenic side was Major Leonard Darwin, the eighth child of Charles Darwin. Major Darwin and the eugenicist argued essentially that the government should incarcerate and sterilize the feeble-minded rather than financially supporting them. But he was resisted by Josiah Wedgwood IV, who, if I'm counting right, was actually Leonard Darwin's second cousin. Wedgwood like the China. We've made that joke before on the podcast, remember? That's not that's not yeah. a joke. He's actually part of the Wedgwood family. But it's also the Darwin family. Josiah Wedgwood the first was the grandfather to Charles Darwin and Francis Galton. So the Darwins and Wedgwoods and Galtons, maybe a little inbred. <laughs> yeah. A little here, a little there. But this <laughs> Josiah Wedgwood was the fourth one. And he was a bit of an iconoclast. He supported the suffragettes. He championed Indian independence and was a big Zionist, among other things. And he fought this particular law because he thought it was way too authoritarian. But the wind was way behind the eugenicists. Oh, yeah. Leonard Darwin presided over the first International Congress of Eugenics in London in 1912. And with all that momentum, they helped bring a mental deficiency bill to the floor of Parliament to prevent the increasing propagation of half-witted people in their terms. Wedgwood tried to forestall the bill. He filibustered the reading of the bill by giving 150 separate speeches. Whoa. Holy crap. The only thing that kept him going was because people kept giving him chocolate. And he's my new hero. You would love him. Yeah, I would totally do that. He'd smell like your office, probably. <laughs> what are you talking about? That basically is Joe's office. That's what she does every Tuesday. <laughs> anyway, after two full days of talking and eating nothing but chocolate, his voice finally gave out, as I'm sure mine would have, too. The Mental Deficiency Act was passed. So in the end, the chocolate and talking very British for a long time just didn't do it? Sadly, no. <laughs> oh. But Wedgwood was at least successful in getting Parliament to remove mandatory sterilization from the Mental Deficiency Act. Now, this is key because as a result of that, the U.K. never became like the USA or later Germany, both of which legalized mandatory sterilization. And if you don't know how that story played out, well, we'll return to that in a later episode. So this is a lot of background. What should we take away from all this? And how does it connect up with Brigham and Yerkes and Terman and all the guys we were talking about last time? The British Mental Deficiency Act of 1913 created an immediate need, which was to find a reliable way to identify the feeble-minded before the British race degenerated. Ah, intelligence testing to keep the race pure and all that. Yes. This reminds me exactly of what was going on in France when Binet all of a sudden filled the need that they had for coming up with an intelligence test. Absolutely. Mm, totally. In this case, one of our chief characters in today's episode comes in, a psychologist by the name of Cyril Burt. Mm. Burt had grown up traveling with his dad, who was a physician of the rich and famous on his medical rounds. One of the patience of Bert's father was the confusingly named Darwin Galton. Okay. <laughs> yes. <reading>. Yes. Total. <laughs> Darwin Galton was the brother of Francis Galton. Uh. 
Bert became fascinated with Francis Galton's notions of heritable intelligence and race degeneration. And as a psychologist, eventually trained as a psychologist, he also became fascinated with Charles Spearman's notion of general intelligence, or G. Bert made his life's mission to demonstrate that intelligence was fixed and heritable and that it was tied to both class and race. So he published a paper in 1909 using Spearman's G and a newish methodology, factor analysis. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> um, you know, I sometimes use factor analysis in my own work. It basically involves the extraction of small numbers of independent factors from a big group of intercorrelated measurements. So just like Spearman molested or tested school children <laughs> on the English island of Guernsey, Cyril Burt studied different social classes of children in British schools, and he demonstrated to at least his own satisfaction that upper-class children were smarter and that the broad differences in G-based intelligence among the classes were based on innate differences between the children of the different classes. So I guess Sperman read Burt's article, and then he wrote to Cyril Burt, and the two began a many-year-long correspondence. I think it actually ended up changing the face of intelligence testing and even British education itself. Yeah. You think so? That's kind of a big claim. Well, how so? So Cyril Burt used his connections to Spearman and to the Darwin family and the Galton family to get a plum research position in London. After the Mental Deficiency Act passed in 1913, eugenicists pressured the London County Council to have Cyril Burt be their chief feeble-mindedness inquisitor. Spearman actually let Burt use his laboratory space at University College London. As an aside, at University College London, Burt would meet Carl Pearson. Pearson was a disciple of Galton and the first chair of eugenics in the world, who had called for the British to take active measures to prevent race suicide by establishing immigration <laughs> restriction and even outlawing interracial marriages. But Burt didn't stop there. At the end of World War I, he was put in charge of the Institute of Industrial Psychology, a foundation paid for by the Carnegie Trust. Oh, a bunch of Carnegie money went into funding eugenics in the U.S. too. That's, that's right. Bert, in this position, was charged with surveying workers across the U.K. Part of his job was to come up with tests that would find the worthless worker. I've known a few of those, <laughs> as well as alcoholics and criminals. I've known his... a few of those. <laughs> yeah, me too. Jeez, we associate with really good types. From this position, Bert was able to perfect his intelligence tests, and he could promote the notion of general intelligence. Even while the American intelligence testers that we talked about last time began to question their own tests and how much of an innate capacity that they were actually measuring, and also the notion of a single general or G-based intelligence. As part of the Eugenics Education Society, Bert also published some of his work in the Eugenic Review, including later on his work on twins. So is that how he changed the face of intelligence testing then? I mean, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But wait, there's more. So Cyril Bert actually replaced Spearman in 1931 as head of the University College of London's psychology department. In 1942, Bert became president of the British Psychological Society, and in 1946, he became the first psychologist ever to be knighted for his work on intelligence testing among schoolchildren. Whoa. Yeah. Not just Bert, but also many Nazi psychologists conducted twin studies during World War II. 
And even though most scientists steered clear of the Nazi stuff after the war, the studies caught Bert's attention since he had done many twin studies himself, studied various types of relations and characteristics in twins. In his academic role, he had supervised Hans Eysenck, who later directed Arthur Jensen's postdoc. As a result, Bert's work ended up being the primary foundation upon which Jensen built his case for the connection between race and intelligence in 1969. Oh, yeah. You remember Jensen. He's the one I mentioned back in the beginning of our first intelligence episode. It It was his work that the Students for a Democratic Society were protesting that day at Berkeley in 1969 when I was tear gassed and shot at after my handball (laughs) class. Handball! (laughs) Bert was very statistically sophisticated, but he was also finding essentially what he wanted to find in his data, that nature always trumps nurture when it comes to intelligence. Yeah, I mean, even though he did a ton of research, you're right, the take-home point of most of it was that intelligence is primarily genetically determined, and it's better in some racial or socioeconomic groups than others. And there was always at least an implicit notion that the intelligence of society could be improved by controlling the reproduction of folks who weren't so smart. These nature-over-nurture assertions were preached widely at eugenics education society meetings, which many of these guys attended, and by their friends, some of whom were prominent geneticists and eugenicists, which at some point was pretty much the same thing. But I thought the story about biology in the 20th century was that geneticists separated themselves from eugenicists. Yeah, that is definitely how the histories are told, but they're very often wrong. So take Ronald A. Fisher, for example. He's the British guy that we usually credit with demonstrating that Mendelian genetics and Darwinian selection could work together. That's the so-called neo-Darwinian synthesis that we still use today. But he was an ardent eugenicist. Yeah. And even closer to Cyril Burt was C.D. Darlington. Darlington worked with Fisher and with Burt to promote the idea that there were distinct racial groups, even in humans, and that the traits of those racial groups, traits like intelligence and criminality, are genetically fixed. In fact, Darlington and Fisher created the genetics journal Heredity in part to counteract left-wing ideas about the environment and about culture impacting the permanence of genetics that they thought were creeping into Western biology and undermining their eugenic views. One thing I think is really striking here is that all of these figures were considered some of the best scientists in Britain in the early to mid 20th century, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, none of them were marginal. They had these big public and professional forums in which to promote their ideas, and they generated a ton of students. Bert himself would become highly decorated for his twin studies. But, you know, I think even kind of knowing that prominent figures were behind the conjunction here between race and intelligence stuff, I was really shocked that Raymond Cattell was among them. Why don't you tell us about him? So Raymond Cattell was a really famous British psychologist whose work still resonates in the field a lot today, which is why I even heard of him in the first place. He's probably best known for his foundational work in the psychology of personality and temperament including developing early models of like the factors that serve as the building blocks of personality. Have you guys heard of the big five? Is that half of the big 10? That could be. (laughs) The big five, it's also called the five factor model. Sometimes it's a really mainstream psychological framework that's used now for understanding personality that's based on these five key traits. So Cattell didn't come up with the big five, but he did do the pioneering work here that would eventually lead to it. Um, He was also a pioneer in psychometrics, which 
That's just a fancy word for the theory and technique of psychological measurement. I had come across him before because in my work on mental health, I've used some of the statistical methods he pioneered, like factor analysis, which I mentioned a minute ago, for testing the function of psychological symptom scales that I work on developing in places like India. But I had no idea before starting to work on this episode that he had this other dark side to his research. Ooh, the dark side. What did you find on the dark side, Joe? (laughs) To start with, Cattell was a very active member of the Eugenic Education Society in London, right alongside Cyril Burt. And while Cattell became an incredibly famous psychologist whose work we still cite today, it was well known, except not to me, and I would guess a lot of younger scholars, that he also published all this racist and anti-Semitic stuff. One of his most widely cited early works was a book called Psychology and Social Progress, written in 1933. And looking through it again, I just cringe. Suppose, as may well be the case, that one of these races is naturally courageous, self-sacrificing, and enterprising, and the other less so. The group will continue to prosper owing to the activities of inventors and explorers of the first race, who, as is generally the rule, will not pass on the usual number of children to the next generation. The nation will be successful in war, because the same race has actively responded to the call of arms and to self-sacrifice. Throughout these activities, this first race will on average be giving more to the group than it can itself recoup. Eventually, only the second race will inherit the group advantages acquired largely by the first racial compound. Then, like a huge parasite which has devoured its host, will the nation be bereft of all the qualities that gave it power, remain a monstrous frustration of evolution, a biological abortion... (laughs) The hatred and abhorrence which many people feel for the Jewish and some extent Mongolian practice of living in other nations instead of forming an independent self-sustaining group of their own comes from a deep intuitive feeling that it is somehow not playing the game. Because our unbiologically minded civilization cannot perceive or appreciate any intellectual causes for these feelings, they are readily branded as prejudice by would-be intellectuals. So in 37, just a few years after he wrote this, Cattell left the UK for the United States, but his views just sharpened from there. From this new post he got at Columbia University, he wrote another book, The Fight for Our National Intelligence. He hadn't been in the US for more than a few months, but he was already promoting the same notions that this fear that people of lower intelligence had more babies than smart people and therefore were going to essentially outbreed them and become a parasite. And he was worried that in his new country, these substandard people were going to flood schools and consequently society with low achievers. With better words, that basically sounds like what that Louisiana guy Abruzzo said in 2008. Yeah, and also pretty much what the German doctors were saying during the early days of the Third Reich when they were focused on enforced sterilization. I mean, this even circulates as a common idea in the U.S. today. I remember when I had my last baby, my obstetrician was like, so are you going to have any more kids? And I was like, heck no. (laughs) (laughs) Then he started talking about how smart, educated people like me needed to have more kids because dumb people are out reproducing us. A present-day catalyst. That's, that's a chemistry <laughs> joke. That's a, Is that a Catalyst, get it? Yeah. That was awesome. Totally. Yes, it's totally the, the modern manifestation of Cattell's ideas. Okay, Absolutely. okay wait. So now, now Cattell totally sounds like a Nazi doctor in the making, but 
I had originally heard of him for a very different reason. Didn't he win some, I don't know, big psychology award in the 1990s or something? Well, it's complicated. Answered like a historian. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think, maybe. We don't have any hearts. So Cattell continued throughout the rest of his career to develop this idea that some groups of people were going to take over others and that low achievers should be phased out but might overtake the rest of the world instead. And he wrote a yet another book, he was very prolific, in 1987, outlining the contours of a new religion he called Beyondism. Bleh. And the purpose of this religion was to identify and follow the ethical and cultural principles that would allow its enlightened followers to be the ones who took over society instead of those degenerates who were going to outbreed them. Whoa, that's weird. Yeah. So in 1997... When he was like 92 years old, the American Psychological Association named Cattell for a Lifetime Achievement Award for being, quote, among the very small handful of people in this century who've most influenced the shape of psychology uh, as a science. But a guy named Barry Mailer, who's a historian of science. Yay! Um, he also founded the Institute for the Study of Academic Racism. So Mailer reached out to a number of others, including a psychologist at Rutgers named William H. Tucker. And this group wrote an open letter to the APA protesting the award based on Cattell's long history of flagrant racism and anti-Semitism. People defended Cattell by saying, oh, his personal views are a product of their time. They weren't of the same public prominence as his scientific views. But Tucker and Mailer's group argued in truth that Cattell was not just mostly a typical psychologist with a few naughty little background racist views. <laughs> Um, instead, they said, These views on eugenics are his scientific views. Cattell believes that his scientific work has provided the foundation for his politics. He's built an organization, the Beyondist Trust, to promote these views. So what happened after that? Also, once again, I'm really glad that I went into anthropology in spite of our history with the race concept instead of psychology. Yeah, I was going to say anthropology was no less racist in its founding, but oh well. <laughs> but we so, learned they haven't yet. Good point. Um, yeah, in the middle of all this, Cattell issued his own open letter responding to this takedown, saying that he abhorred racism. And then he actually withdrew himself for consideration for the award. And he died just a few months after that. And there's still debate today about how racist Cattell actually was. Tucker has written a whole book about it. And he remains one of the main people who opposes Cattell's legacy in the U.S., Okay, so we've we've covered some people that we don't like, like Cyril Burt and Cattell, but I don't think we should leave people with the idea that none of the stuff was opposed in the UK or elsewhere. I've been dying to talk to you about Ashley Montague. Ah. Ashley Montague was an anthropologist, a student of Franz Boas. Who we really need to talk about more. He keeps coming up on the podcast and we keep saying we're going to talk about Okay, him. okay, but very, keep it very quick. Franz Boas was a German physicist who came to the U.S. in the late 1880s. And he became a vocal opponent of all the racist science that was going on in anthropology at the time. And in particular, he became the only non-eugenicist on the Immigration Commission appointed by Theodore Roosevelt to look into the immigration situation in the second decade of the 20th century. And he taught a huge number of the most important American cultural anthropologists in the 20th century. So Montague came to the U.S. and ended up taking courses and being supervised ultimately in a Ph.D. 
by Boaz and one of his students, Ruth Benedict. He worked out to be a, a very fascinating foil to people like the Cyril Burts and the Raymond Cattells because he was originally trained in psychology by Charles Spearman. He also took a course with Carl Pearson, Galton's disciple. But even as an undergraduate, Montague was beginning to become skeptical about the conclusions of his professors with regard to intelligence and the innateness of intelligence, and especially the tie to race and intelligence. As early as 1926, he wrote an article criticizing the sloppy correlations between race and intelligence, especially between whites and blacks. By the 1930s, he was living in the U.S. and he did his Ph.D. work at Columbia. And as he was working with Boaz and Benedict, he became convinced that the entanglement of physical characteristics like skin color and facial form and hair form with behavioral characteristics like achievement in school was the key problem with the social implications that existed of a category like race. By 1939, he was taking this view to the public, not just to the academic world, but to the public with a radio address where he said, Eric, will you honor okay. us? It is established fact of science that the physical difference between the races of mankind are not associated with any peculiar mental differences. Over 30 years later, he was a common guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, where he continued to bring anthropological ideas to a lay audience. Here's a quote from a 1962 paper where he laments the common man's misunderstanding of race. <clears throat> the man on the street uses the term race in much the same way as it was used by his 19th century compere. Here, physical type, heredity, blood, culture, nation, personality, intelligence, and achievement are all stirred together to make the omelet, which is the popular conception of race. I know Montague best for what was probably his most famous work, Man's Most Dangerous Myth. You're right, Joe. Montague published Man's Most Dangerous Myth, The Fallacy of Race, during the war. That's World War II for you youngsters. <laughs> In 1942, right when the Nazis were misusing race in some of the ways that he literally feared most. Mm. It was a comprehensive and even at that time, a very large book supporting his anti-race stance through the discoveries of modern science. At the close of the war in 1945, he published a study going back into the Army's World War I intelligence tests. Not surprisingly, he showed that the racial analysis of the alpha and beta tests was horribly flawed. Oh, the beta test is the one with all those crazy pictures, right? Like of white people playing tennis on a court with no net and you're supposed to like draw on the net or the pen knife with the missing implement that I was complaining about in the last episode. That's right? it. That's, that's exactly the beta test. Yeah. Montague found that the black white differences indicated by these tests were best explained by socioeconomic differences. In other words, he showed that northern blacks and whites did better than southern blacks and whites on these tests. And so he was making the argument that the social situation was more important than the race or any sort of innate factors. Montague did a lot of path-breaking anti-racialist work, but still not everyone supported him. He was animately opposed on race by Hooten, the father of American physical anthropology, and by many of Hooten's students. 
Montague also carried on a long-term argument over the use of the term race with Theodosius Dobshansky, starting in the 1940s. Oh, Dobshansky. He was one of the famous fruit fly geneticists of the 20th century, and uh, he ended up helping rewrite America's biology curriculum in the 1960s. That's right. Very important in the role of biology in, in the 20th century. And in spite of their differences, Montague and Dobshansky became good friends and worked together to oppose arguments about genetic causes of racial differences in intelligence test scores. They make this argument the first time that I'm aware of in their 1947 article that came out in the in Science, where they take the position that natural selection has worked in human evolution to enhance behavioral flexibility so that we adapt to our environment not through chemical changes caused by our DNA being mutated and being selected for, but rather we adapt primarily to our environment through culture, through our ability to adjust our behavior to whatever environmental settings and thereby adjust our environment to us. In other words, our intellect is not genetically wired. Both of them strongly believe this. They felt that differences in achievement on tests or in school were due to differences in the environment, as Montague had argued in his 1945 article. These two collaborated many more times throughout the lifetime of Dobshansky, opposing racist views of intelligence. So we're going to have to wrap this up soon. Clearly, we're going to need like seven more episodes <laughs> on this race and intelligence stuff because we're just getting to the race part now. <laughs> I don't know about seven, but we need several more. But before we go, I want to circle back around to the story that I told last time about the students that were demonstrating against Arthur Jensen when I was an oh, undergrad yeah. at Berkeley. And, and Eric. Handball. <laughs> and Eric, you have to finish the Cyril Burt story. There's more to the Cyril Burt story? Cyril Burt is the gift that keeps on giving. While Ashley Montague was trying to make the case against genetic race differences in intelligence, the story on the other side of the pond seemed to be unraveling at about the same time, too. Yeah, so after the 1930s, Cyril Burt toned down his open support of eugenics, but he still promoted many of the same views in his mainstream psychological work. Actually, Burt became something of a household name in mid-century psychology, largely because of those monozygotic twin reared apart from each other studies. From 1943 all the way to 1966, Burt published this whole long series of papers using these twins, uh, I think 53 sets of twins in all. That was his subject. Yeah, that's what he claimed as his final Exactly. End. So not surprisingly, given his earlier eugenic past, Burt concluded in all these studies that heredity just plays a much more prominent role in the development of intellectual ability than does, you know, the environment. And in fact, the oh. British educational system altered in part because of Burt's findings. So just after Burt's death in 1971, a Princeton University psychologist named Leon Kamen carefully examined all of Burt's findings in those twin studies, and he became very skeptical about how they were handled. So he then went back through the whole history of race and IQ that we've been discussing for these last two episodes, all the way back to the army test and Goddard and Yerkes and all those guys. All of it seemed really deeply flawed to him. It, Burt's was just the most egregious modern example. And so Kamen asserted that the whole thing was a sham in a book that he wrote in 1974. So it sounds like the 1930s all over again. By the 70s, the scientific argument tying race and intelligence together was retreating yet again. I mean, it seems like that. The argument intelligence is a heritable trait like eye color or hair color. It seemed to be hardly supported by the 70s. Uh, but it was not to be that it just would die a nice and simple wah, death. Wah, wah. 
again. I know. And you also didn't mention Arthur Jensen's involvement with Bert's swan song. Jensen agreed with Kamen that Bert's number of 53 monozygotic twins reared apart seemed way too good to be true, along with his correlation uh, statistics. And Jensen said this in a 1974 article about Bert's studies. It is almost as if Bert regarded the actual data as merely an incidental backdrop for the illustration of the theoretical issues, which to him seemed always to hold the center of the stage. What Jensen had to say about this had no impact, however, on Jensen's own views of the genetic basis of intelligence. Really? Uh, no, it's still he still just clung to that right throughout the rest of his life. While the Students for a Democratic Society at Berkeley were protesting his racist conclusions that blacks were less intelligent than whites because of their genes, those same students probably would have burned his office down <laughs> if they had known that he had created a foundation separate from the university to accept funding from the highly racist organization, the Pioneer Fund, a group that is still funding racist causes today and a group that we'll talk about in the next episode. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, yes. I can't wait to talk about the Pioneer Fund. But in the meantime... We're ready to wrap up for today, right? I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much. Please leave us a comment. And we'll see you next time for episode three of the Race and Intelligence series, which might last forever. <laughs> Ten, nine, eight. Ground control to Major Tom. 